Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. What's up, Avenue family? It is me, Thea, uh, communications person at the Avenue. Uh, we are here with Pastor Tim. Hello, Avenue. And when you hear and me guess. on these, uh, you should already know that there were some technical difficulties on Sunday. <laughs> we are working to uh, oh, have man. that fixed uh, officially and forever. Yeah. Uh, but for now, you get the opportunity to hear PT just kind of go at it, which I think in some ways uh, are really, really dope. So <laughs> I'm excited to hear PT just kind of get into a sermon recap. Yeah. Um, and I hope you guys enjoy. Amen. 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 Thanks, Thea. Um, yeah, so we've been in Micah. Um, this guy, Brother Micah, um, from Moreshef Gaff in Judah, who is prophesying primarily to Jerusalem, but also um, he's got the northern kingdom in mind, too. Um, God's people um, are, this is pretty much, um, are getting ready to um, be completely in exile. Um, and we saw the first three chapters, um, chapters one and two. Um, clearly there was um, just, you know, Jerusalem and, 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 and God's people in his place um, have now turned into a cesspool. It's the best way I can mm-hmm. explain it. Um, we get throughout the poetic imagery of this book just how angry God is. Um, 500 years at least of disobedience um, has led to this moment. Um, God is not impulsive. Um, God is not um, um, short-tempered in the mm. way that we think about it. Mm-hmm. Very patient. We know yeah. this, right? We've got years of evidence of this. And this now is the culmination of just years of waywardness. Uh, we were talking to our kids the other night about the cycle of apostasy um, with God's people. They, you know, everything is well. They start, you know, welcoming other gods. They start sinning, turn those other gods um, they receive judgment, and ultimately, it's hopefully through the judgment that they would end, eventually end up turning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, here we are. Um, God um, specifically singles out Israel's leaders in Micah three. Micah three ends so morbidly; it's so sad. You got to feel that. It's like, man, would you shut down a business that you were running if you knew the employees um, were? Um, dishonest in their dealings, um, you know, had really um, uh, morally just degraded what you stood for. Would you shut your business down? Like, I mean, think just think about that. Your livelihood. Let's just say you were an entrepreneur, um, and you depended upon your your self enterprise, um, and it had become something so horrible and so um, in inaccurate from what you wanted it to represent that you would even be willing to take money out your own pocket mm. to preserve what you stand for. This is what God does. He said, man, yo, um, my city and my people are so misrepresenting who I am. I'm going to destroy the, the city that bears my name. Wow. <laughs> and I'm going to remove all my leaders. I mean, that, I mean that's what happened. And um, I don't think we can look past that. That's how much God cares about justice. I don't like hearing all this business about God not caring. God is a just God. He cares so much that he'd be willing to literally gut his own Mm -hmm. to make sure that they don't continue to degrade the earth or what he represents. So anyway, it's so sad because that's what uh, Jerusalem is a heap of rubble. 
there's fresh grass growing over um, the place where the Holy Temple used to stand. And then all of a sudden you just get chapter four. And it's just like, man, it is the most, um, one of the most beautiful passages in all the scripture. I have preached from it uh, multiple times. Um, it runs parallel to Isaiah's vision in chapter two. Yeah. Um, it really just begins the first five verses with this beautiful picture of this mount, magnificent mountain um, or Mount Zion, if you will, the new one, right? Um, it's shades of Revelations 21 when the new Jerusalem is there. But it, it, it ideally, these first five verses have um, this new mountain of the Lord's temple. It's established as the highest of all the mountains. That's verse 1. And it's exalted above the hills. And people will stream to it. And really, in verse 1, that last little part of it, the peoples will stream to it. That's really, it sum, properly sums up the rest of those verses. Um, because what's happening on the Lord's mountain is exactly what he wanted um, Israel to be. Um, Genesis 12, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. Um that people are going to so thrive under God's law and his rule um, that even the foreign nations are flocking to it. They're streaming to it to learn it, to practice it, to delight in it. Right. All the things that um, Israel's leaders had failed to do to delight in practicing God's law, to know it. Um, finally, even the pagan nations are coming to it. I, I made a silly joke. It's almost like, you know, everybody, it's, it's such an um, esteemed thing to go study in Oxford. It'll be this crazy thing. I'm going to Jerusalem, right, mm -hmm. to sit under their God um, and his laws because we all widely accept now that his way is the best way. Isn't that crazy? Can you imagine? I cannot. Can you imagine a world where even, you know, the, the people who we regard as the godless would even say, yo, that Yahweh's way is right. Um, but it turns quickly into the end in the rest of chapter four. This is the ultimate future of Zion and in, 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 in Zion's daughters. Um, and God's people, but the immediate future will be exile. And so um, verses 6 really through um, 13 and the rest of that chapter, I'll just kind of point that out. Um, it, is, it is a sad kind of portion of Scripture. Um, you know, it moves from distress ultimately um, to, uh, you know, it, it's on an upward trajectory. Um, but you get this sense, um, especially verses 9 through 13, um, You've got, it says, why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your ruler perished that pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor? Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For you now must leave the city to go camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hands of your enemies. And so that's that hope, right? It starts in distress. Um, we see this clearly, um, you know, that Israel is now immediately suffering for um, walking away from Yahweh in his ways. Um, but um, there is someone who is coming. The Lord will redeem you. And we see that come even clearer into focus at the beginning of chapter 5, right? Um, you know, you know, verse 2. This is kind of that Advent season um, 
piece of portion of scripture that you may have heard before. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratab, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me the one who will be ruler over all of Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Um, and so there's our hero. Amen. He's showing up. Our hero is on the scene and he's being predicted. So we saw the distress that Israel will immediately experience and face. But even in that distress, someone is going to be born. And we see that um, for you biblical scholars out there, um, Ephratath is the place, um, is the name of the district in in which Bethlehem is located. And that's where David was born. Mm. So now we see that correlation between this great king um, of Israel with the greater king, David, uh, with the greater David, Jesus, who will be born in those same places. Um, His origins are from old. This is an eternal king um, and from ancient times. Um, This is both that that phrase phraseology right there is tying in the lineage to the Davidic kingship and also this eternal kingship that's only divine. Right. And then you get into verses four through six with the magnificence of this great shepherd. Remember, John 10, when they said Jesus is the good shepherd, it really is is is. It means that Jesus defines the class of shepherding. You know what I mean? Like, he is the standard um, when you say he's the good shepherd. You know what I'm saying? It's not that he was just a good shepherd. No, he is the standard by which all other shepherds are measured. And you see verses 4 through 6 is like, man, his shepherding is is defined, um, is characterized by uh, security and greatness, right? And they will live, verses 4, they'll live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Um, I just remember pausing in the middle of that sermon on Sunday, but I think it's a preach-worthy moment. Do you believe and do you know that God's shepherding skills are not relegated to certain seasons of your life? That he is the good shepherd no matter what season of life you're in. He knows how to take care of his sheep. You know what I'm saying? Because these people have not in this particular, the, the, the way that the angle of this scripture is, um, you know, they are very much still in Assyria, um, verse 5. They're in the middle of enemy territory. They're in the middle of exile. But the shepherd is still amongst them, shepherding them. You know what I'm saying? Even while they're in the enemy terrain. Um, do you believe your God can take care of you? Or does he have to remove you out of situations to be able to take care of you? True. I mean, it is what it is. You know what I'm saying? But my God is awesome. Come on. And he's able. You know what I'm saying? Um, You know, I love that part of Psalms 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That is this, this kind of imagery. You are not in the green pastures. But just because you are not in the green pastures, it doesn't mean that your shepherd is not with you. Come on, man. We got we got the we got the real one, baby. So we get this picture of the shepherd who will be born, who's taking care of his sheep, um, both in exile. Um, but one day um, his 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 flock will be known by their vastness and it'll reach to the ends of the earth and his flock always dwell securely. Um, and so this is the remnant. Uh, this is the future of the remnant of Jacob that one day, verses seven through nine. 
This remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on a man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies. Um, this is this beautiful picture of the remnant. Remember, we talked about remnant a couple weeks ago. These are the faithful ones, not the perfect ones. The faithful ones. There's a difference. The people who um, who continue, even when they do the wrong things, to repent and turn back to Yahweh. Come on, man. That's, that's what it always is, is what it always has been. God has never asked his people to be perfect. Remove that from your theology. Remove that from what other people have told you about your theology. He's never asked for people to be perfect. He just asks when you do the wrong thing, repent and come back to me. Yeah, yeah. I'm not upset. No. I'm yes. not preaching to anybody out there. I'm just saying what it is. Okay, He's okay. okay. To <laughs> but one day, these faithful ones, right, they will stand tall and victorious amongst the nations, and which inevitably will bring life to some who fall in line and will bring destruction to others. So here is now um, the rest of just the, the, the scenario, the last act of God. I love this. You, you kind of see this in 1 Corinthians 15. It's like there's this passage, beautiful passage about, you know, he's the first fruits, then he'll raise us, you know, so he'll defeat death. And then, you know, as he defeats death, you know, he crushes like these final enemies and then he will become all in all. And this is kind of the picture of what you see in verse 10 through 14. He's just going to destroy all the things that have separated his people's hearts from him. He's a jealous lover. He's just going to like, man, I'm going to cut off all my competition. Look what he says. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. The horses and the chariots, those are literally the militaristic capital assets that people in ancient times put their hope in. I'm going to destroy those. You won't put your hope in those no more because they won't even exist. I'll destroy those for you. Don't worry, baby. I got you. <laughs> I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds, all those things, those mighty fortresses that you think are protecting you. You don't need them no more. I'm here. I'll protect you. Right. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer ca uh, no longer cast spells. All the diviners and the illegal um, um, divine ways of communication. You won't need those no more. I will speak to you. I will speak to my people unmitigated, right? I'll destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you, and you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. Mm. Isn't that crazy? I will uproot from among you Asherah poles when I demolish your cities. And he finally says, I will take vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. Now, We've done a lot of talking, one, two, three, four, and five, all these chapters about God really punishing his people for walking away from him. But that does not mean or does not excuse the nations who do not um, choose to submit to his way. And I think what you, you see is this beautiful contrast. Remember we talked about at the beginning the magnificent mountain, Mount Zion. It's the fulcrum. It's the focal point of all the earth and all the nations who love God's law and delight and want to submit to it, they're streaming to it and they're finding life. But at the end, in chapter 5, we see that all who reject God's way, all who reject Yahweh's law, they will receive vengeance and anger. Mm -hmm. You will make a choice. 
And I think, you know, here's where we close it up today. Is I think, you know, sometimes one of the, 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 the key reasons why we need to preach through the Old Testament is because we need to make sure we preach the gospel in the air and the gospel on the ground. You know, Matt Chandler, I love to quote this in the, um, oh, God, what's the name of his book? Um, the something, something gospel, um, explicit. the explicit gospel. Explicit. Yep. He really framed it up in two ways. You know, the gospel on the, in the air, gospel on the ground, gospel on the ground, personal redemption. You know, I've sinned. I've been personally forgiven. I've been redeemed. I've been loved. Gospel in the air that God is restoring all things. Revelation, he's making all things new, you know. Um, and so this is very much God's kingdom is very much a gospel in the air. It's a macro thing. It's bigger than you. That Christianity is not just about personal forgiveness and redemption, but it's also about a victorious king and his kingdom agenda. And it's, you know, when Jesus busts on the scene, I love this, through John the Baptist, Mark 1.15, the time has come, repent. The kingdom of God has come, repent and believe the good news. You see the merging of all those things that, hey, man, the king is coming, you know, and this is really, really good news that his... His agenda, you know, the kingdom is a government. It's a a system of government, uh, an autocracy, theocracy, whatever you want to call it. He's bringing an agenda to earth. And the only way you can be a part of it is by personally repenting of your sin. Mm. But you actually, you, you, I don't, you have to really do some work on your theology. Because if you think you can go to and live in his kingdom when all you want is the absolution of your sins, but you actually don't want to live in his kingdom, I don't know if it works that way. Like, you actually have to believe that life under the king is better. Yeah. And I think some people come to Christianity because they just, they feel bad about some of the things they've done. You know, they want, they want their guilt absolved, but they don't actually believe that life and blessing flow from the king and his mountain. I don't want to, I don't take the light in his ways. I don't want to just sit there with him and, and learn. But this is what this is about. I think, do you believe that God's way is right? His, his, God's way as we defined it, his plan, his method, his timing. Do you believe it? Or is it just uh, eye roll? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and so I also believe that as we read through Micah, we're forced to really reckon with, you know, we're very much in another kind of exile. We're not home. Nope. You know, we're not home. And so we're forced to ask ourselves these questions. Like, can God take care of his people while they're in exile? Is pain and suffering purposeless and is it eternal? Will it be forever? Is he powerful enough to rescue his people from this present evil age? Like, I'm sure they were asking that in Assyria and Babylon when they were in exile. It's like, man, these nations are so powerful. He... He 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 can't out military these. Ain't no way he can get us out of Syria and Babylon. Sennacherib was tearing them people up. Nebuchadnezzar tearing these people up, and I'm sure they were like, man, no, oh, they. I mean, they too big and bad for for God, right? Is there a victorious happy ending? Is Micah four and five? Is that true? Yeah. Like, or is that just you know hope, opioid for the masses? Just something to kind of you know swindle us will he abandon his people will the righteous actually be vindicated 
And I think this passage is an encouragement for all believers um, in Yahweh, in the Lord Jesus, that our shepherd king is coming and he will be victorious, you know? And so I think um, there's just times where we just need to wrestle with that. The big story. Do you believe the big story? Or is our sin the end of our story? Or will evil bad actors, will they win the day, you know? And our answer is emphatically no. Our sins have been washed as white as snow, and our king is victorious. And he will vindicate the righteous, and he will punish the evildoer. Amen. Amen. Boom. And we out. And we're done.